Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Oh, we're just going to um, go to a um, podcast called From Revolutionary Radio, Prison Abolitionism, Abolitionist Feminist, Feminism, sorry, and um, the Anarchist Black Cross. But we're just going to go to the half of the um, podcast because it's a long one. So just um, interview with the Anarchist Black Cross in America. So... Hey, we are here with Nestor to talk about prison abolition through the lens of the anarchist Black Cross and touch on issues of bail and bond. Um, Nestor, would you like to introduce yourself and say a bit about your background? Yeah, so this is Nestor. I'm with the Omaha Anarchist Black Cross. I'm also a member of the Omaha Freedom Fund. It's a new project that we're trying to get going locally, and we're here to talk about gulags and shut them down. Yeah, that's right. So maybe to start off, you know, what is the Anarchist Black Cross Federation and what is it, some of its history? All right. So the, the Anarchist Black Cross Federation is groups of Anarchist Black Cross chapters across the country that started in uh, 1995. And the purpose was to uh, kind of consolidate their work, streamline it, kind of get more of a platform to continue the work of the Anarchist Black Cross chapters across the country so they're not just so running around with their heads chopped off, which the uh, the Anarchist Black Cross has a, an even longer history than from 1995. It goes back before the Russian Revolution to, actually there's three dates that no one can settle on, either 1900, 1906, or 1907. It's also three cities that they can't really pin down, either London, New York, or uh, outside Moscow. And the the time frame, nobody can really pin down to when, at the time it was called Anarchist Red Cross, and uh, kind of works on anarchist time because they can't decide on which which day actually it started. <laughs> so that's interesting. So what, what are some of the main maybe goals or objectives of the Anarchist Black Cross? The Anarchist Black Cross main goal is long-term support of anarchist prisoners and that's extended to uh, political prisoners and prisoners of war, which would be uh, social wars, drug war, etc. Hmm. That's extremely important and interesting. And, you know, living in the middle of the police state as we do uh, with more people in prison in the U.S. than anywhere else in the world, uh, this sort of activism, this sort of revolutionary activity around prisons and prison abolition is extremely important. So let's go ahead and ask you, what does prison abolition mean to you? And what are the real-world steps that we can take to work toward that ultimate goal? Abolition of prisons would be, it's many different ways to do it, just like there's many different tendencies of anarchism. You could go insurrectionary, uh, where prisons are burning from the inside. The inmates have risen up, they're taking over, they're burning the the place down. There's also just supporting uh, 
the inmates as workers, such as the Incarcerated Workers Committee has done an absolutely amazing job just recently organizing uh, prisoners along worker lines, solidifying that base there so they have just the solidarity amongst themselves. They, they create a, a working class within the prison. And uh, sometimes there's more reform, which seems like it would be a, more of a liberal strain, but a little reform like uh, ending the death penalty seems like something that could be brought back, which here in Nebraska it wasn't brought back because we have a, a billionaire governor. Right. And that's the the problem with reforms. They can always be repealed. So you go from one extreme to another. And prison abolition is a, a long, long-term project because it is so deeply ingrained in the U.S. Yeah, so in some sense, it's it's attacking the prison system on all fronts, whether through reforms that, that prevent people from being, you know, murdered by the state, all the way up to actually insurrections and prison riots and protests and supporting them, but also writing campaigns, writing to prisoners who are so cut off from the rest of the world and can be isolated and lonely within the prison state. Um, you know, I think, is that is it correct to say that the Anarchist Black Cross has a, a segment of of people that, that kind of write and connect with political prisoners via, you know, pen pals, basically? Absolutely, yeah. And mostly because prisoners are not allowed to write each other. If you're in a different facility, you can't write to another inmate. Mm. So uh, getting messages that way works really well. And uh, just reminding prisoners that they still have their humanity, even though it's been taken from them. They're still human. They're still remembered. Their struggle is still valid, and we remember it. So, yeah, writing to inmates is a huge chunk of... Uh, Anarchist Black Cross work. Yeah, I was talking to Victoria Law earlier about some of these same issues. She was coming at from like a, a women, a feminist perspective. And she talked about how prisoners who don't have writings and, and interactions from people outside, like if they don't have people that care about them on the outside, that don't write to them, um, prison guards and sort of more of the criminals inside the prison system, the guards themselves, they, they, they identify those people as easier to take advantage of, easier to do things to with, with little to no recourse because they don't have those outside lines. So by, by writing to prisoners, um, you are kind of connecting them to the outside world in a way that might make a guard or the system itself think twice about abusing that prisoner or taking advantage of them in various ways. Absolutely. If the guards know that somebody on the outside knows what's going on, they're sometimes less likely to do it. But a lot of times that they can stop mail. They, people get put in uh, communication management units um, where they receive no mail. They can't make any calls. They're completely locked out from the entire world. That's one way that they, they try to stop people that are just reaffirming their humanity. It's kind of the extension of the solitary confinement mindset of trying to cut a, a social animal, a human being, who, which is a social animal, off from interaction with other humans, you know, and, and that in and of itself is sort of a, a mental torture, an emotional torture um, that the prison state I inflicts on people. Um, but let's talk about, or can you talk about mass incarceration and, and specifically its, its federal genesis and what social structures that mass incarceration ultimately supports? Mass incarceration, which it's so ingrained now that we think that it's uh, something that we just can't attack at all. But I learned through uh, reading other uh, researchers' books that um, there was a time right before mass incarceration took place in uh, Nixon's cabinet where he was contacted by like Quakers and by different uh, prison abolitionists at a time, which very few people in there uh, – 33,000 in the federal prison, I think, at that time. And they're saying, please don't increase this. Don't make it worse. And what was ironic is that Nixon himself was a Quaker. 
Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was an evangelical Quaker, so he was a bit more of the uh, fire and brimstone. Mm. Yeah, it was amazing that uh, he comes from that background of peace and uh, of pacifism and then turned out to be just one of the 20th century's biggest monsters in the U.S. Right. Yeah, and, you know, there's that... Um... It's well documented at this point, but one of the Nixon aides recently came out and said that the reason that Nixon, um, the Nixon administration began the drug war was precisely to target black communities and to target leftists who were who were acting up in the 60s. And so the drug war and the mass incarceration that followed from that drug war was a political attack. And so you, you can you can view victims of the drug war as political prisoners because that's that's precisely the the genesis from which that whole system kind of took took off and it was right. of course in, in, in intensified by Reagan and Clinton etc yeah and the war on drugs is the longest running war in the western hemisphere mm. it may not have the idea of war but yeah it's a full-on full-scale militarized war absolutely with casualties the hypermilitarization of the police the the focus on communities of color and poor communities it's it's a iteration of the class war etc um, in what ways, because I think this is interesting, and this is something that, that you talk about, in what ways do fascist movements specifically, who want an ethnostate, use the social structures of prison as a model? This could even go back all the way to Nixon, where his models of uh, getting more federal prisons and filling them, they were watching the uh, the growth patterns of African-American communities, and then they would set up uh, models of how many uh, per capita youth would be possibly uh, criminalized or become criminal. And they set these models to uh, show a demographic growth in, uh, in the prisons. They would buy, I think it was like 1980 that they predicted that uh, the black and Hispanic populations in prisons would outgrow the white population. And that's a, an inverse of the fear that white nationalists have, that they're being economically and demographically displaced. And that fear that brings them in to the white nationalist idea that they're being replaced. Like in Charlottesville, we saw them chanting, you will not replace us, you will not replace us. Yeah. It's that fear that they're going to disappear somehow. It's where the idea of white genocide uh, gets roots. Actually, in California, for uh, a long time, they had forced segregation. So if you went into a California prison you and you were white, you got a white prison or a white cellmate. If you're black, you got a black cellmate in the reception areas, which operate as like holding cells before you go into general population. They would separate you among your ethnic or uh, racial divide lines. And in 2004, the Supreme Court said, hey, that's unconstitutional. You can't. 2004. 2004. Wow. Supreme Court said, hey, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. You can't separate among uh, race. And it took them until 2014 to actually figure out how they're going to uh, rework their entire racist structure because yeah. you can't just build a, an ethnostate in the prison and say, okay, well, the ethnostate didn't, didn't work. The Supreme Court says we have to desegregate. And they couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure out how all of the uh, the violence that they had created, right? Because they they made prison gangs. They created Aryan nations. They created yep. multiple subsections within the prison, and they would fight each other. And now they couldn't figure out how to <sighs> fix that. Jesus, yeah. So those those people come out into society. They've been, you know, especially with regards to fascism, they've been inculcated with Aryan Brotherhood, which is almost because of the segregation of the prisons. It's almost a natural effect and a consequence of that segregation is to group by your own race. So it actually is a breeding ground for fascism. And a lot of those 
fascists come out and they start organizing on the outside. And, and we see that pattern happen over and over again. Right. And it seems like a semantic point to make, but there are slight differences between white supremacists and white nationalists. White supremacists are the brunt. They're they're just there to be the hate and the force of hatred. The the white nationalists are a bit more pragmatic, even though they they still operate on the same violent tendencies. They, uh, they say, oh, well, people will self-segregate like they do in prisons. But uh. the prison itself is a violent force. You have no agency in prison to do or say anything that you could possibly claim as your own. So saying that somebody's going to self-segregate, that doesn't make any sense in a, any logical way to say, oh, well, we'll just follow the, the prison model because, you see, the Latinos go over here, the blacks go over here, the whites go over here, and that's how we're going to separate, that's how we're going to balkanize the USA. And it, it just doesn't actually work out. And um, people like Richard Spencer will say, oh, yeah, I want a white ethno state. And then somebody questions him on that. Well, how do you accomplish that? And he says, oh, we're going to have to work that out. We can't really go into the details here because then it'll be destroyed by them with <laughs> yeah. the echoes around it. Right, uh, right, right. And he says that because he doesn't have an answer that doesn't involve violence. Exactly right. Yeah. I was about to say, because he's, he's hiding the fact that it's going to take brutal amounts of, of unfettered violence to incorporate that idea. There's a an inmate that we write to quite often um, that a lot of uh, anarchist Black Crosses uh, write to, Eric King. He's a Kansas City anarchist, anti-racist. He uh, recently wrote, I think it was in October, he wrote How to Be an Anti-Fascist in Prison. He's in federal prison right now, or will be for the next eight years of his term. Um, and he wrote, actually, I'm just going to quote him here. Um, in his letter, he wrote, if you put yourself out there verbally, be prepared to stand on it and fight because you will be challenged by the, the forces. Uh, if you're lucky, it'll be one-on-one. And small things that happen instinctively can get you in a jam. So it's so smart to be mindful. And he says, I've been in jams for laughing at a, a sunken military ship, for watching a soccer game with Mexicans, for letting a, a gay black man into his yoga class that he teaches. And those things that he would do by nature, just extending human kindness to right. like, hey, come into my class. Um, it gets him... Uh, kind of pinned up with the the white supremacists that are in there. And he says, well, you can't just go in swinging at every swastika that you see because that's going to get you killed really fast. Yeah. So um, he falls back on what the core of anti-fascist, anti-fascist work is, and it's just treating people like human beings. You talk to people without being uh, concerned with what race or what creed they are. Um, and the uh, Traditionalist Workers' Party actually jumped on that letter it was published on It's Going Down, so they, they kind of watched that. But one of the main uh, propagandizers on the TWP website, um, I think his name's Matt Parrott, but yeah. it really doesn't matter. He's a scumbag. He doesn't deserve a name. Right. Um, he jumped on that to say, see, this is what Antifa is all about. When you get them into a real situation, they just fall back and hide in their cells and uh, talk about how anti-fascist they are with not even understanding that he's being threatened with his life for just being a human. Yeah, exactly. Just saying, hey, let's be friends. Let's strike up a bond here. Are there, is there solidarity created between him and, and folks of other race inside the prison because of his humanness? Yeah, uh, and he actually, it's not something that he can hide either because he has the word Antifa tattooed on his face. Yeah. So it's there <laughs> it's it, a bad when you look at him. 
<laughs> I love that. All right, well, let's get into um, <clears throat> sort of the class dynamics of the prison system, which manifests often in the forms of bail and bond. So, so what is bail specifically, and and how is it different from bond? Bail and bond are somewhat interchangeable, but not really. It's there's two different categories of bond: unsecured and secured. A cash bond is what we call bail. You give uh, either the full or partial amount of your bond, depending on what the local laws are. Here in Nebraska, it's 10% of your your bond schedule. So say it's $50,000 bond, you pay $5,000 to get out of jail. Um, luckily, we don't have bail bonding companies here because they're predatory. They're terrible people. Um, dog the bounty hunter. Yeah kind of people. It's, it's uh, capitalism exactly. concentrated in this area. And uh, the the bail bonding people, that's a, a considered a surety bond. So it's backed by something that they're backed by an insurance company. And it's it's presented as like, hey, you can go to this three-day class and become a bail bondsman. And then you can go be a bounty hunter, catch people, catch skips as they call them. But they're backed by insurance companies. They're backed by hedge funds. They're backed by Goldman Sachs. Um, it's not like go down the street. Hey, there's a, a bell bonds person. There's Doug the bounty hunter. He's a he pulled himself up by his bootstraps. No, he is <laughs> backed by global capitalism. Jesus, and he hunts people down. So the cash bond and security bond. That's two types. Uh, property bond, which is pretty rare, but it actually has its historical basis in the bond system. So giving up a, a piece of property as collateral. Um, that's where the the bond structure comes from. Where before people were uh, not able to move around as often, like thinking even back to like the 14th century where not everybody had a court system set up in their the village or their town or their feudal, uh, whatever they had. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you'd give up a, a piece of property, you give up a piece of livestock or put up your measly little home that would tie you to the land somehow. That's where property bond would come into play. That's Kind of, I think there's still some southern states that allow putting up like your house loan or putting up a car, something like that, to get you out of prison or, excuse me, get you out of jail. And uh, the whole purpose is to tie you financially to a physical place. So giving up uh, cash, giving up property, something, it's all the idea that you're going to show up to your court date. But study after study after study show that people that are released on their own recognizance actually have a higher rate of going to court than people that were uh, bailed out by multiple different oh, ways. Interesting. Which is how um, the, the push to end cash bond and surety bond, how that came about. Yeah, can you talk about talk about the efforts to get rid of that system and, and what, what the underlying like premise and, and principles of attacking that system are? Yeah, so the Omaha Freedom Fund that we just launched a week ago, the day of this recording, it is a community fund that will pay bonds of people that hopefully it's under $50,000 because based on the bond schedule, that's just the, the bottom rung of felonies and then all misdemeanors and nonviolent offenses. So it would keep people out of pretrial detention and people that are out of uh, jail during pretrial or during their uh, their trial have a better case. They get better judgments if they're out and they're able to seek legal counsel. They're able to be with their families instead of being locked away for 30, 60, 90 days before the trial and jail itself being as violent as it is. 
a lot of people don't even survive before they get to their trial, before they get a judgment. They're dead in limbo, which happened three times in Omaha last year. Three different people in the county jail died before they went to trial. Yeah. In, in my own experience of, of entering the jail system, um, I was being released along with a prisoner or somebody that was in jail for a period of time and their bail was like 6000 and they just couldn't afford it. And so they, they had been in there for weeks. And I don't know exactly the situations that occurred, but eventually they got out. But, you know, for, for something that they hadn't even been convicted of, they were sitting in a jail for three, four, five weeks waiting for people on the outside to come up with that money. Now, if you're extremely rich, that's not an issue. You can commit any sort of crime, and we've seen that happen even all the way up to to murder and you can get out because you have the resources to get out. So it's a very classist system, which is not surprising to anyone listening to this, but it just, it's worth repeating. Yeah. They call that affluenza. You're too rich to no consequences. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what are bail bondsmen? I know you might've touched on it a little bit, but what are bail bondsmen? What do they do? And why are they almost exclusively found in the United States? So the bail bonding profession is a bounty hunter. It's someone who, when you get arrested and you get your bond set and you live in a state that has bonding companies, they will take 10% of your uh, bond to get you out. And then they will take on that surety bond of the higher amount, the say it's $50,000. They'll take on that full $50,000 because they're again, backed by global capitalism. They can absorb that. And if you jump bail or miss your trial, they will issue not really a warrant, but they have the legal capacity to go hunt you down and retrieve their their investment, basically. And that hunting down, that, that point of conflict is often a, a point of violence? Yeah. I'd, I'm not entirely sure of like every state's law, but I know that most states will allow physical confrontation to take you down, to stake out your home, find out where you work, and then physically take you into jail by whatever means possible. And that's a really macabre, you know, it makes me think, you talk about Dog the Bounty Hunter, it also relates to the show Cops, which is not only is all this unethical shit taking place, all this class war taking place, but then other corporations find a way to profit off it in the form of making it into a television show and having ad revenue from sponsors come on. So capitalists, the vampires and parasites they are, are finding every way in to make money off of the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our society. Um, so from every angle, these people are being ripped off and being made a spectacle. Um, and also, I think cops reinforces not only classism, but racism. Um, if you watch a show of cops, it is white cops going into poor, often communities of color and acting violently towards those people and mocking them. A lot of these people have mental illness and on the show, it's just it's a, it's a point of mockery. You laugh at this person. How how crazy is this person? Blah blah blah. How insane is this person? Look at all these funny things they're doing. Look how crazy their hair is. Their clothes aren't clean, and it becomes a spectacle. Um, so it's very dehumanizing the entire process. And of course, capitalism only adds to that dehumanization. Um, you touched a little bit about the historical roots of this whole system, but maybe you can go a little deeper into what are the historical roots of the bail and, and cash bond systems. The entire system is to keep people tied to uh, tied to the, the system that's keeping them either in prison or the threat of prison. With the Omaha Freedom Fund, it would be getting people out that are most uh, marginalized, that are most... Slavery is back. 
Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Uh, welcome to The Doing Time. I'm Pete. Um, we're going to go to a, a podcast um, from Revol Revolutionary Left Radio, Prison Abolitionism, ab Abolitionist Feminist and Anarchist Black Cross. But we're just going to go to the um, play the Anarchist Black Cross um, podcast. Maybe we'll play it half next time because um, we've got to put some. Um, it's a long podcast, and also we don't forget that we're we're all standing here on stolen land, and this is um, land of the First Nations people at risk through the the violence of staying in jail. The historical aspects of getting uh, bail removed or getting a cash bond ended is it's actually a not incredibly old concept because I think in Chicago it's just recently they got a, a court order to get judges to stop setting bond, stop setting cash bond and getting a personal recognizance release. So the dynamic of uh, cash bond is just still moving quite rapidly. You said personal recognizance. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah, th that is the unsecured type of bond. So that would be the, the first type. And it's more rare. Um, the two types of unsecured bonds, actually a ticket, like if you get a, a speeding ticket um, and you sign the ticket and it says you'll show up to court this day, that's a, a release on citation ticket or a bond. And then released on uh, personal recognizance is just you don't have to pay anything to get out. You don't have to put up any property. But a lot of times it's not used because the judge will say, oh, you're a flight risk or your crime is outrageous. You shoplifted for your family. You're a terrible, horrible person. Right, right. As long as we're talking about reforming the system as of right now, mm -hmm. what would a, a concrete reform be that would that would take away the, the class dynamic of getting out before you're convicted of a crime, you know, instead of paying cash bail or any other form of that property, et cetera, what would, what would a, an abolitionist like to see as a, as a meaningful reform on that specific area? It's not necessarily a reform. Um, the, the purpose of community bond funds is to abolish themselves, to abolish the, the cash bond itself. So some of the, uh, the more reform issues would be like uh, some communities have, instead of a uh, cash bond, it would be like community service. You like show up and uh, check in to wherever you're at, like a, a food shelter or something, a homeless shelter, food kitchen. Um, that would function as keeping you in the community because you show up, you do 
some civil service and then you go to your court date. Um, that's one of the more uh, reform-based ways of doing it and uh, reducing jail populations before heading to prison. So last question, because I think the Omaha Freedom Fund is, is interesting and important and can be used by activists and revolutionaries who are listening to this episode. So what is the Omaha Freedom Fund and how does it operate? I know you've touched on it a little bit, but maybe go a little bit more in depth. Yeah, it's easily replicated just in Omaha. It's all uh, volunteer based. Right now we're still in the funding stages. Like I said, it just started January 15th. And um, once we we get a certain uh, funding level that we can start bailing people out, it's a rotating fund. So when we bail somebody out and they go through their court case, the court costs come out of the bail, which is 10%. Yep. And then uh, they get a check cut to them and that would go back into the fund and they would release more people. So the money keeps going back in. We get a 10% loss each time. So we would have to make that up. Yeah. We'd have to continue doing fundraising, but a 10% loss and keeping people out of jail is a great return. Yeah. Yeah. And here in Omaha, I know other places, there have been there's been a lot of success with with fundraising. You can tap into local DIY culture. You can tap into the music scene, um, the art scene, and find creative ways to to bring in funding for organizations and for for things like this. You could have a concert where you say, "This is the Omaha Freedom Fund. We're trying to earn that earn money to help this program." People will come and support that. So I I, I urge activists and revolutionaries out in the broader population listening to try to. Think about some of those things. Think about ways that you can fundraise and be creative with it because, you know, fundraising is beyond just this program. Fundraising is essential to organizing generally. So, yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. Where can listeners go to learn more about and support the Anarchist Black Cross Federation specifically and as well as the Omaha Freedom Fund? Yeah, the, the Omaha Freedom Fund is omahafreedomfund.wordpress.org. The... Um, Omaha Anarchist Black Cross is omahaabc.wordpress.com. And then the uh, the Anarchist Black Cross Federation is, uh, I believe it's anarchistblackcrossfederation.org, but I don't have that in front of me, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. What we're going to do is put all of that in the show notes. So anybody that's interested can look in the episode summary and find all that information and go help it out. This is an extremely important issue. This is an issue that cuts the core of intersectional politics, of class politics, and of the police state in general. So get involved. Try to find ways to to enter this this realm of activity. And thank you, Nestor, for coming on. It's been it's been an honor to have you on, and uh, I wish you luck. And thank you for all the good work you do in the community. Thank you. And you can follow us, uh, work on Twitter. The Omaha Freedom Fund is Omaha Bail, and the Anarchist Black Cross is Omaha ABC. You got to remember, nine is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website 
go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! This is a song and story about the Murray River. It's about the past, the present. Because you never try it. Beautiful song. Um, we're just going to go some some Mia Abdul Jamal podcasts now. Um, some snippets of the um, prison radio um, from America. Um, okay, have a good listen. The politics of judges. We're all trained and conditioned to see judges clad in their dark and foreboding robes as people who are superior to normal, average men and women. The robes lend an air of solemnity, wisdom, and certainty, similar to the vestments of priests, nuns, or monks. But in truth, they're not just like us. They are us in every way that makes us human. They're angry, ambitious, biased, and as base as are we all. But they, like us, are trained and conditioned to act above the fray. When Roger Brooks Tawney wrote in the infamous Dred Scott case that Negroes have no rights that a white man is bound to respect, he was wearing a black robe. When Buck B. Bell was decided, holding that it was legal to sterilize women who were described as idiots. All of the judges making the ruling wore black robes. When the Kuramatsu case was decided approving the internment of Japanese Americans simply because they were Japanese, all who approved the ruling wore black robes. Robes, no matter their color, are just robes. And much injustice was justified by men wearing the uniform of judges, which brings us to the present. We will see much that is new in the Supreme Court's new dispensation, but never doubt that it is still political. Indeed, all law is political, for law is but politics by other means. If you watch the recent judicial hearings, you saw the mask slip and saw rage, fury, anger, and political contempt. You think a robe covers that? From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Ramona fights for life. As many people now know, Ramona Africa has been ailing of late, perhaps the result of her time in the move house, Osage Avenue, after police dropped a deadly bomb on the house and the city fire department refused to fight the flames. The flames, the hungry flames of May 13, 1985, licked her arms and shoulders, leaving bright scars on her dark flesh. Those same flames sent searing heat into her lungs, as well as the deadly smoke of burning materials in the house on Osage Avenue, smoke that may have settled in her lungs until it, too, bit into her flesh. Those same flames that devoured 11 men, women, and children who, trying to escape the house, 
were shot back into the inferno. That she survived this urban massacre is nothing short of a miracle. But she has done more than survive. She has thrived. After her unjust seven-year imprisonment, after surviving the bombing of the Moo House, she crisscrossed the country, speaking out about move and police terrorists. She's spoken at colleges around the world. Today, Ramona Africa is ailing and needs your help to fight her way back to health. The MOVE organization asks that you go to the GoFundMe page and access Ramona Africa's entry. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. The Right to Rape It is difficult to use this title, but upon reflection, it must be so, for the truth supports it. For the truth is, this nation was born in rape. The rape of indigenous women was considered but a spoil of war. African women were ravished aboard slave ships, clad in rags and chains. Many women leaped into the dark roiling sea, preferring death to how they were treated on board by seamen. Indeed, if the slave ships were a horror, American slave plantations were worse, for here women were raped systematically. Why? Because the more they became pregnant, the more wealth they produced for the master class. Black male slaves also played a role in this tragedy, for by raping women, they also increased a slave owner's wealth. Such men were considered prize bucks for the wealth they created for masters. Indeed, up until the dawn of the 20th century, it wasn't considered a crime to rape black women. It was a white rite of passage. Could those days, which lasted for centuries, not have radiated into this ignoble present? Consider the commonality of sexual harassment and sexual assault in modern American life. Does anyone remember the tailhook scandal where U.S. servicemen took gross advantage of women in the ranks? Everywhere we turn, we find evidence of gross misogyny against women, which, while expressed in rapes, has its origins in an intense hatred and disregard of women. One need look no further than the highest office in the land, the U.S. presidency. We witnessed it in the recent senatorial so-called hearings in the Kavanaugh nomination, where women were ignored, unheard, and dismissed, even by other women. I guess boys will still be boys. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Prison rebellions and the struggle against mass incarceration. You wouldn't know it from corporate media, but a struggle is going on across the nation against mass incarceration. Prisoners are waging hunger strikes and other collective actions to give voice to incarceration nations.
the manifestation of mass incarceration. In Pennsylvania, prisoners at the state's newest joint, the $400 million Phoenix prison, planned phone and commissary facts to protest the conditions, but the DOC preempted these actions with a statewide lockdown based on a bogus claim of drug exposures. Using such a pretext, state officials locked down the entire state for two weeks and afterwards imposed a draconian mail system that required friends and family of prisoners to mail letters to a screening business in St. Petersburg, Florida. So, despite the silence of the corporate media, prisons remain a place of agitation, of protest, and of resistance. Meanwhile, I thank you all for supporting our efforts in Philadelphia courts as we struggle to open up new appeals. As the late Fred Hampton said, the beat goes on. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Mike Africa, free. It's been 40 years since MOVE member Mike Africa has been able to walk the streets. Today he can do so because today he is free. A text from Mike Africa Jr. announced to the world the following. Finally free. On August 8th, 1978, my dad was taken away from me. On October 23rd, 2018, I got him back. Free the move nine. Mike Africa is known as a committed runner. Even while he was in the Philadelphia County Jail, Old Holmesburg, he ran the periphery of the yards like a deer. He is a quiet, serious man who has suffered extraordinary repression during his prison days. What lights him up is his wife, move member Debbie Africa, and their two children, Wit and Mike. He has also been a serious student of music, playing guitar for many years. Many years ago, when I worked as a reporter for WAJT Radio, I invited move members to the station to prepare some interviews. Shortly thereafter, four or five move men arrived at the station, and when I looked out into the parking lot, I was surprised to not see a bus or a station wagon. When I asked the brothers where they had parked, they burst into laughter. When I asked why they were laughing, one brother said, matter-of-factly, that they didn't drive to the station. They ran to the station from Move's old house and headquarters at 33rd and Powelton Avenue. Mike had one thing in mind, asking, where's the music at, man? Even then, this was around 1976, his love of music was evident. Now, free, he can listen to music from around the world. Mike Africa, free, from Imprisoned Nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Kaddish for the Tree of Life. Kaddish in Jewish ritual 
is sung at the graveside of the departed. It is a chant, a song, a psalm of life and loss, which now, in the quiet city of Pittsburgh, must be sung almost a dozen times after a white racist armed with an AK entered a synagogue, a Jewish temple, during a naming ceremony for children and left death in his wake. This massacre occurred just days or hours after another man left over a dozen bombs to be mailed to several former presidents, an actor, and several prominent black politicians. What connects these two events besides time? Both men left messages online showing hatred for immigrants, whom they called invaders. Where have we heard that word recently? At Trump rallies, the U.S. president sends his audiences into wild applause when he damns people of Latin America as invaders of North America. Yes, it must be said that Trump spoke out against anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish hatred recently. But I ask you, if you can, to listen again, you will hear silence, no applause, no yells, appeals of agreement, just silence of the lambs. President Trump began his campaign by damning Mexicans and flashed from there to immigrants. And after his embrace of the white nationalists of Charlottesville, Virginia, who can be surprised at the flash fire of hatred for Jews? Trump has lit the flames of rhetoric with his tongue at rallies across the nation. How can we be surprised when those who hear him send bombs or open fire? From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. Polls. If we believe the polls, on November the 6th, a political earthquake is coming. Reporters are almost breathless with tales of blue waves and transformation from one party to another. But if such predictions seem so sure, remember the elections of 2016, when polls proved woefully inadequate. Predictions fell like yesterday's lottery tickets. For polls, ultimately, are snapshots in time, and they can prove fallible to something as simple as the weather. Rain and cold temperatures can depress voting, as the hardiest dare to brave the winds or weather of fortune. We are witness to the politics of fear and hatred of the other, them, those who are not us. But who are we, if not them? It is interesting to see and hear of invaders to these shores. For to the indigenous First Nations, all who now inhabit America, with the possible exception of Africans, are invaders, the refuse of Europe. Here, they slaughtered millions of so-called Indians to make Lebensraum, German for living room, for so-called whites. Politics, that great machine of division, can call the people to fear and enmity, or it can call them to unity 
and common purpose. Time will tell which will prevail. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio. As Prime Minister of Australia, I am sorry. Coming live to you from the Aboriginal Ten Embassy in Canberra as part of the Sorry Day Convergence. And here comes Gilla. How you going, Gilla? How's it going, Gab? How's it going, uh, all you listeners down Melbourne? And you're missing a great time up here and uh, a great day. Now you fail to imagine what if it happened to you. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio station bringing you coverage of community issues and events. We need your support. Call 9 419 and subscribe today. I feel hopeful. I feel grateful. I feel sorry. As an Aboriginal person, let me shake your hand. Thanks very much for being here today. Thank you very much. No worries. Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were... of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep. Indigenous Voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. All right, um, see us all next week. Um, I'm out of here.